Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It's Owen Jones here. Today, Gail Porter. Now, I have to say, as I say to Gail, I can't really imagine the late 90s without Gail Porter. Uh, she was such a fixture on television. And the reason I wanted to talk to Gail is I think she's just a very warm and interesting person. She's just extremely likeable. But the way she's been so open about her struggles with mental health, I think is extremely important because stigmatized people find it hard to talk about it and someone in the public eye talking about it i think really does help uh so we have a natter basically it's just like an old good old chat uh about her mental health struggles about that stigma i guess we talk about other things uh she's a really good egg really really likable and uh it was a, it was a big honor to chat to her uh housekeeping uh Thank you for listening. Please support us if you can as we expand, either on Patreon forward slash owenjoes84, where you can be part of the community and help us come up with ideas of who we talk to and what we talk about. Uh, or you can use the support function in the description. We're trying to offer an alternative to the right-wing media and offer some hope and optimism. Uh, and as well as that, if you're happy to do so, if you give us a five-star on iTunes, I'll be your best friend forever and buy you a pint in real life. Oh, got to stay by that, stick by that commitment. But also, at the help of the people, listen to the podcast. With all that, this is me, and this is Gail. Gail Porter! Wow, what an honour! Hello. It's not that exciting, you know, Owen. It's really not that exciting. <laughs> you know what? It is exciting. Can I tell you what? I'll tell you for why. I'll tell you for why, Gail. I don't know if this is a, like a weird thing to say. If I th- oh your cat, what's the cat's name first? Pickles. Pickles, beautiful. For those who are listening on the podcast, this is a beautiful black cat that is very proudly stalking Gail. <laughs> she always does, yeah. <laughs> She's a real stalker. She's already the star of the podcast, so that's a shame. No, that's not true. Gail is, and I'll tell you why, Gail. If I was to think back to the nineties, I thought I was fifteen at the end of the nineties, and I would think. Battle of the Bands, Oasis Blur, very integral to the whole experience of the 1990s. Cool Britannia, obviously. I guess Spice Girls, that was kind of a big thing for a while, wasn't it? Whether you loved it or hated it. Ironically, I kind of love some of their songs now. And you, I'm not joking, you were so integral to how I see the late 90s. I'm really sorry if I damaged you. Um, (laughs) I apologise right now because... I think, um, yes, I was kind of around everywhere in the 90s, just kind of doing fun things like Top of the Pops or, you know, Blur and Oasis. That was a big part of me in my, well, I was 20s odd. And uh, yeah, no, it was, do you know what? I had the most fun and did some great jobs, which unfortunately, do you know, I was talking about this the other day to a friend of mine. I was like, do you know what? I used to wake up in the morning. We'd have the big breakfast, which was just total chaos, and no one knew what was going on. We we were given scripts, and most of them went into the bin, and we just carried on. We didn't know what was going on. And then you'd have Top of the Pops at night time, you know, at the weekend, on a Friday, Thursday, Friday. And now it's just like, oof. oof. <laughs> how, how did you manage that? I remember, because I remember Top of the Pops. For me, it was always, it was Thursday, and I remember we always had Spag Bowl on Thursday. I remember the Spag Bowl <laughs> cooking away, watching you on Top of the Pops. I'm not joking, That's that was Thursday evening. I mean, how did you, ma- I want to talk a bit about the 90s and, and fame and all the rest of it, but what how did you manage without you know how was it possible to cram in all of that at the same time i mean how did you sleep well we didn't really sleep in the 90s but uh, we'd get home so if i was doing the top of the pop so get home about maybe 11 o'clock or something and then my alarm would be set for two o'clock in the morning to get up to make get ready and head to the big breakfast so um yeah, it was it was quite tricky, but luckily, top of the pops was just once a week. What 
if we're looking back to the 90s, how do you sum up that period? Because I think sometimes 80s has got a very... I know I just threw a few 90s things. But ni- the 80s, very clear. 70s, 60s, very clear. Identity. And sometimes I kind of think it's kind of hard. How, you know, what was the 90s all about for you? Exactly that. What was it all about? It was just, <laughs> It was great fun. It was music. It was fun telly. It was going to gigs all the time. It was... The 90s was just a very, very fun time, as much as I can remember of it. <laughs> With fame, because there was always that, you know, I remember as a teenager, we all, you know, wanting to be on TV, pe- to be like you. That was a big thing. People people wanted that. What, in terms of when it happened to you, how much was it what you expected and how much actually is glamorous as it looks from the outside, was it maybe not as much? To be honest with you, I didn't expect anything because I didn't plan to be a TV presenter and I'd worked behind the scenes for a long time. And then I went for an audition for a job in kids' telly. I got the job. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't particularly glamorous. It was just in the 90s, we just had fun. You know, everybody on the set, you know, from from the runners to everybody were just great fun, enjoying every minute of their work. The, You know, you were best friends with a makeup artist. It was just really, really good fun. I, I would put it down to just fun. Yeah, no, I didn't think it was very glamorous, to be honest. I wasn't one for getting dressed up too often, as you might in the 1990s, as my mum said. She went, have you not got any clothes? <laughs> <laughs> One, the other thing about the 90s I really want to put this by you there was this thing I think it was a couple of years ago where they got millennials to, to watch Friends which was another iconic part of the 90s and a lot of millennials were like oh my word it's like homophobic it's sexist a lot of the jokes and it's weird because in the 90s there was almost this sense of it was all modern and everyone had moved and there was the anti-PC backlash people were like political correctness gone mad that was a thing but at the time, actually, it was, I mean, we saw as well some of the terrible kind of, you know, the abuse scandals came out with involving various celebrities, not just from the 90s, a lot earlier than that as well. But how much was sexism a big, big, I mean, it still is, but how much was it a big thing in the kind of media circles you were you were in? Do you know, um, well, obviously, I chose to do magazine shoots. That was a thing that I just, you know, I don't know, I got into and I did. And But when I was working, nothing. I had no sexism, no nothing. Everyone was really kind and, you know, politically correct. I mean, I think I just had a really good, lucky run of things for whatever reason. But no, I didn't really find it. i tell you what I did find recently, because my daughter's watching Friends, because she's 18. And um, there was one episode where I think one of them dates a woman and she's bald and the horror, they were like, oh my God, she's bald. And it was like, some of them I watch now and I think, wow, that's quite bad. <laughs> that's really wrong. But uh, no, I was quite lucky. Sexism, I was fine, I think. With that shoe, I mean, the famous shoe, which again was a big, you know, look, we all fancied you, girl, including me and I'm gay. But it's true, it's true. Everyone... It's just true. Um, but in terms of that whole, that the FHM thing and on Westminster, tell me about what happened there and tell me about how you, what the, what was the reception like? What did people, you know, what, how did, were, were some people all kind of self-righteous and like, Ugh. I mean, what, and how did you, how, what was that whole experience like for you? Well, what happened was I went to do a shoot for FHM, didn't get paid. Um, they said it was just going to be, they weren't sure where it was going to go. Um, you know, in what pages or whatever. And then obviously I knew that I did my bottom thing. Cause I, yeah, do you know what? I was, nothing sort of phases me. So I thought, well, it's only a bottom. No one's going to see it and it'll be fine. And then I get a phone call from my mum one morning. She went, what the F in heck have you done now? And I was like, eh? And she said, have you put the new? And I was watching the news and I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> 100 foot arse is on the Westminster. That wasn't planned. So yeah, you know, some people were okay about it. Other people were outraged and thinking I was just the worst person ever. And um, I couldn't get hold of the editor of FHM for quite a while. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they didn't tell me and I didn't know that was going to happen. So it was a bit of a tricky time just to kind of get my head around it all and think, well, there's nothing I can do. It's up there now. Everyone's seen it. 
Um, I haven't been asked about it, so um, I guess I'm just going to have to weather the storm. And as I say, it was half and half. Some people were nice and other people were just going, oh, you're disgraceful and you're terrible for women's rights. And I was just like, do you know what? I'm going back to GAY and Soho, so I don't care. I mean, all I'd say is there there are much, much bigger asses in Westminster. That's for sure. Uh, I mean, that is <laughs> inarguably... Uh, that's that that is that is what West that is what Westminster tends to attract. In terms of, I mean, what I mean, you know, that that whole moment, I suppose, for you. I mean, didn't you feel a bit? Did you feel a bit of betrayal? I mean, you know, there's one thing doing a photo shoot, and there's another not knowing they're going to project it on the Houses of Parliament. Were you not? Were you angry? I mean, did you feel betrayed? To be completely honest with you, I didn't know how to feel because it's not the sort of thing that happens to people on a daily basis. No. So I was a bit kind of, um, I had to had to watch it a few times, like put the telly back on and go, is this a real thing? And then I kind of opened my curtains out my bedroom and there was a little press outside and I thought, well, this is a real thing. This is a thing. Oh my God. And then I wanted to go up to the shops to get something to eat. And... People were, were smiling at me and I thought, you've you've all seen me naked. Every single one of you probably has seen me naked on the news this morning. So um it was it was just a bit of a, a mind mess. It it messed a bit with my mind, but then I was a bit tearful and it did kind of affect me and I was confused as to why how it happened and why they did it behind my back and um so yeah, I had a a, a while of feeling quite insecure, but then I thought, well, I gave them permission to take a picture didn't know they were going to do that with it so i'm going to have to i'm scottish man i'll, I'll get through this <laughs> there's nothing like kind of strong scottish characters get you through anything um exactly. your in terms of you talking about mental health i mean this is something which i know people with mental distress who it's had a big impact on because when people with a profile speak about because obviously there's not you, there's no obligation to do it um and and how people respond is their own person it's a very personal thing and when people with a profile speak about it, though, it does help people in that situation. It just does. And it, and it helps take on the taboo and the stigma. But one of the things is why, you know, because sometimes people say the one big taboo left is is death. But I don't, I don't think that's true. I think mental health is something we find very, very difficult to deal, to talk about. And why is that? Why do you think we struggle so much to just, just talk about it? I think, I think it's getting better because more people are opening up about it. And I mean, I struggled for quite a long time with eating disorders and self-harming. And I think, do you know what, just one thing after another and then my hair fell out and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And obviously mentally, I wasn't feeling brilliant. And I thought, well, do you know what? You can see me bald. So outside, you can see what's wrong with me, but I'm going to tell you what's wrong with me inside, whether you want to listen or not. But I think it's really important that you can actually, you know, just convey yourself and say, do you know what? Sometimes I don't feel 100% right. And then you, the amount of people, like you said, the amount of people that will come up to me and say, I'm exactly the same. I think it's one in four people suffer from mental health issues. And you know, that's a lot of people. And especially now with this pandemic going on um, and people being on their own, you know, I've been in this house with a cat for almost a year now, and I, <laughs> I keep it together by going for my run or just going to walk up the or do some shopping for the neighbours. But I do put notes through people's doors and go, if anyone doesn't feel okay, there's my number. Just make sure I don't give it to a serial killer. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. With, with you, when did, I mean, if you're happy to talk about it, 
when 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 did it begin for you and what do you think looking back was there something which helped trigger it which helped which helped you you know which which kind of prompted some of those struggles or is it something you can there's never one thing that you could pin it on do you know um i think it was just life in general you know i was happy um like you know had my mom and dad um and yeah i I had great time at school and then suddenly i just went from i started overeating then i started undereating then i was getting stressed about life and could i get into college and just life life stuff and then you know some people can take it in their strides but you know i was never the brightest the prettiest or anything like that i was just kind of like the girl next door and i was thinking oh my god i've got no plans for life and i don't know what i'm going to do with myself and yeah just everyday struggles but for some reason on my weird brain they seem to manifest themselves a lot more than i expected and i wasn't i wasn't very good at talking about it we came from a very scottish family so you know we got on with things and it was kind of like right if dad's upset he'll go to the pub if mum's upset she'll not mention it to anybody because she's scottish so um i think that's just the way we were brought up we all just dealt with our own problems but now you know we have i've got the opportunity to talk to people um using well whatever whatever it is i do on telly i don't even know but um yeah so now it's just like i just want to share the the, my feelings and say you you know what you're not on your own i mean that kind of you know when you talk about the kind of this is a kind of a Scottish thing almost. And, and, you know, and also, I mean, I think I grew up in the, I, I spent two years of my, my childhood in Falkirk, as you can tell from my impenetrable Scottish accent, but <laughs> I, spent, I spent much of the time in the North, but there was a general thing. I mean, I've written about this before about men in mental health and because of the kind of, you know, the way men are brought up to see themselves is often manliness is not talking about things and, you know, all that, and, and, and talking about mental health is weakness and being like a woman or being, or being a bit gay, you know, spot being such a so-and-so. But it's it's true with women as well, isn't it? And do you think do you think part of the problem is we have this culture often of if you're struggling, pull yourself together. With men, it's man up, man up culture. But it isn't just men, as I say. Do you think part of the problem is the the, the we can't talk about it because it's it's seen as weak seen as being indulgent or being a burden and you just need to deal with this yourself and it's all in your head i i think there is a lot of worry with people people do i mean i worry that i i don't want to phone people sometimes so i think oh should i what if i oh it's just being a bit yeah weak <laughs> but then um yeah i think we're, we're sort of getting over that now and we are opening up a little bit more but yeah, I think you're right. It is we have got this sort of mental um, blockage that says we can't tell anybody our problems. We we can get through this. We can do anything. But to be honest with you, we can't. We have to talk to people and we have to be open and we have to listen more importantly to other people that you might think um, are really struggling. I mean, I've I had a friend that I never imagined in a million years had anything wrong with her. And um, yeah, she had a bit of a bad episode. Luckily, touch wood, she's still here. But um, yeah, you have to just be very aware of people and listen and ask questions. And um, we don't have to man up or woman up. We just have to be honest with each other and be kind. But do you think the other thing is, if you break your leg, you know what to do. Go to hospital, get a cast, do this, that and that. Uh, You know, if you're physically injured, there's an obvious here's what you need to do to get to this point so you can recover. But if you've got mental distress, and there's lots of different types of mental distress, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's uh, there's borderline personality disorder, and we'll talk a bit about that. Um, There's so many different types, but there's not like type in this number and do this for a few weeks and then you're fixed. It's not that, that's what makes it more complicated than physical health, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, like you say you just you can't i mean some people take medication i don't take medication because i don't know exactly what's wrong with me because some days i'm perfectly fine happy as anything other days i am really struggling but i don't want to take medication it's it's not something that i really i'm not saying nobody take medication just do what makes you feel good but uh, yeah i think like obviously you can tell i'm bold so i get abuse in the street every now and then for being bold but then i think they don't know that 
I'm not having a mentally good day as well. So not only have you picked on me physically, <laughs> mentally you've screwed up my afternoon. Thanks very much. <laughs> I mean, it's just beyond horrible, that kind of thing. What the hell do you think goes through people's heads? Do you something funny well it's not really funny um i don't really get trolled online or anything i've got really nice people that i chat to on twitter and instagram but this guy was i don't know he was obviously thinking he was funny but he, he said hey gail i bet you don't have any public hair and i was like oh my god it's pubic and no i don't and get it right if you're gonna abuse me <laughs> i like that what i find i find that with trolls is often it's like if you're gonna troll me at least be accurate so always always littered with with typos and inaccuracies. It's like, I don't, also, I know I do get trolled a lot, but I, what I find often is just, it's, it's like, at least be original with it. At least come up with some new material. Uh, it's something new and spell it correctly. <laughs> All I want is well punctuated, well spelled, original <laughs> abuse. Is it too much for someone to ask? Exactly. It's not that hard. And we've even got autocorrect on your blinking phones and you still wrong. <laughs> It's so true. I mean, with Ala, with with alopecia, and you again, this is something you've you know you speaking about it because this is something that does affect lots of people in this country. It is seen as taboo. I mean, it's taboo enough amongst men. I mean, it's it's something you know in terms of the way we're socialized and gender is presented in society. What I mean, when that happened, when that I mean, you said before you're like ah, not this, you know, when you're already struggling. I mean, just tell tell what what. You know, when that you were going through that, what what were you thinking? What what was your kind of what does this mean for me kind of thing? Well, do you know, it was so quick. Um, I was in America filming a program called Dead Famous, where we look for dead famous people, <laughs> and um, it was my partner at the time, and he was working on the show as well. And he's like, "You've got massive chunks just come of your hairs come out." And I was like, oh, well, you know, my daughter was about one and a half at the time. So I thought, well, it could be hormones, could be something like that. So I'm not going to panic too much. <laughs> and then it was just more and more. And then I, I think the first thing I was worried about was because my daughter was at home with my ex-husband. And so I phoned him up and saying, I need to tell her that her mummy is losing her hair. I'm, I think my main concern wasn't what anyone else thought was would my daughter not recognize me or... Yeah, that was that was really really hard. So and then also after that, I was thinking I'm going to lose my job because <laughs> who wants a bold female presenter? What is this all about? But they were really kind to me, and I, I sort of wore scarves. And then by the time I got on the plane to come back to London, I was completely bald. So um, that was a bit of a shock. And I remember getting followed by paparazzis and like in, on motorbikes and stuff, trying to take photographs of me to say, oh my God, what's happened to her? And people just, yeah, it was all very, it was tricky, but when you're in the sort of industry that I'm in, I thought either I put a wig on or I, I'm i gonna get on with this. And my daughter saw me and she thought, you thought I looked very rock and roll. So I was like, right, okay, she's fine. I don't care what anybody else thinks. So yeah, I occasionally get a bit of abuse in the street, but not very often. It tends to be teenagers. But the thing is, as well, teenagers don't realise that I do kickboxing, so I can catch them really quickly. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, uh, sorry, that was my worst. I mean, you can see I, you would batter me. Look at me. I'm an embarrassment. Uh, I mean, in terms of that, what was the response to be You said about just absolute numpties behaving like numpties do. But it's because this is something, again, there are not that many people in the public eye who can talk about this. And this is something that affects thousands of women across the country. More than that, actually. So did you, did people, did people, I mean, not that you have, again, any onus or responsibility to be the representative and symbol of people with alopecia. But did, did people say to you, this helps? Did, you know, you talking about it rather than just putting on a wig and not talking about it? A lot of people said that it was very helpful and um, I, I seemed to not get very much work after I first came out as a bald woman and uh, the only jobs I ever got asked to do were kind of um, on chat shows uh, talking about being bald so, and I thought, do you know what, I've been, you know, I've been around for quite a long time, I can talk about other things. I understand that everyone was like fascinated going, oh my gosh, she's gone out without a wig, um, Gail's the only person to talk to about having alopecia so it was 
it was great to know that I was helping other people, but also it got really tiring after like year one. And I think, please talk to me about something else. That would be great. And um, so, yeah, it was okay and it was fine. And um, yeah, do you know, I still get emails going, hi, my hair's falling out. Have you got any advice for me to get my hair back? I was like, have you seen me? <laughs> no, I don't have any advice. <laughs> I can give you a virtual hug, but I can't tell. I'm bold as at anything. <laughs> I'm like a massive baby with boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's the fact as well. Like that must have a big impact in terms of taking on the stigma. Just being able to laugh about it, being able to say rather than just. Be, but in terms of being pigeonholed, because I found that really interesting. Because you get that. I mean, I say look, I'm gay, and I'm lucky that I write about lots of different things not just that, but you get some gay writers who are like, do you know what? I quite like to write about football or speak about football, but all of a sudden you're compen com you know, you're putting this compartment on you that, you know, rather than being able to draw on your vast amounts of talents and broadcasting abilities and all the rest of it, suddenly it's this one thing which you've talked about, but there's only so much you can talk about it and actually you quite like to talk about other things. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I've spent the last few years talking mental health and boldness and, um, Totally fine because I know it does help people, but there are some times that you just like we're having a nice chat about all sorts of different things as well. But um, yeah, sometimes you just think, oh, or, or if I get a phone call from I don't know a radio channel and it goes, hi, can we speak to Gail Porter, please? And I went, what is it regarding? And I think it's going to be about my hair. And then we're just wondering if she'd like to do an interview about um, being bald. And I went, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> I will contact her for you. <laughs> it's me. I don't have a me a manager. <laughs> <laughs> it's like ah. with i've now realized i've just fallen into the trap that i've just identified so i'm not going to drag that one out too long i promise i'm not going to talk about that anymore but in terms of mental health just because it does and i'll because i want to ask you just about lockdown and stuff um i mean part of the issue because you said you don't know what's wrong with you as it were and or you know in inverted quotes you don't know I mean, isn't the issue that we just don't really understand the brain? We don't understand mental health. We, you know, we seem to think, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, I was treated for depression and they, you know, I, I took SSRIs, which uh, type of antidepressant. And uh, I remember taking one, which gave me terrible heartburn and uh, had weird dreams and all that kind of thing. And then I was put on another one. Um, and they are important for lots of people. They have a big impact on on lots of people and different treatments work for different people. Talking therapies are more important for some. So there's no, you know, this isn't me judging. And it did help me, no question. But it was a case of we seem to think chemicals do this in the brain and this, you know, with serotonin, this seems to rectify that balance. But someone put it to me, a doctor put it to me once, that our understanding of the brain is a bit like 19th century understanding of biology. Like we seem to know what this part of the brain kind of does and we know what this part of the brain does but because we don't understand it properly a lot of it is guesswork and it's you know it's not the same as as i said there's a broken arm we can diagnose that so if people have mental distress it can be very hard to identify exactly what it is and therefore what what the treatment is and that's that's what i suppose the problem you have isn't it is that you know sometimes there are days where things are wrong but there's not this one particular condition you can just label it and then magic it away in the same way a physical injury sometimes can at least yeah um exactly that i mean i've i've tried everything from oh my god whatever they've got um all sorts of drugs in the past just to try you know the doctor gave me from prozac to oh i can't even remember there were so many and then eventually they were just not they were not helping me in any way they were making me worse and um yeah, you, you don't know because I, I don't know when I'm going to have a good day. I don't know when I'm going to have a bad day. I'm, I've got friends that take, you know, medication and they're completely fine on it and it's sorted them out and everything's great. But I, it just didn't work with me. And it's, it's true because you don't actually know what, what is it. I remember going to the doctors once and um, I'd asked for an appointment saying, look, there's something I'm not well. I'm crying all the time. I don't want to get out of my bed. And they said, well, can you come back in a couple of weeks? And I was like, well, no, because I want to talk to you now. And then I went back again a couple of weeks time. And at, at that time, I actually got down on my knees and I was crying so much. And I was like, can someone just talk to me, please? And they said, well, we've got an appointment a month on Thursday. And I was like, what? And I was like, I know you can't, like you said, you can't see something. But I was like, literally on my knees in tears going, just talk to me. Please talk to me anybody, anyone whatsoever. And I never ended up going back to the doctors because I was always put on waiting lists.
I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I find that it just makes me really angry. I've, I've interviewed, I did this piece a while ago about men who tragically try to take their own life. And, and you know, part of what I was interested in is that man-up culture and, and, and terrible impact on people. But one of the other things that always came out chatting to them was even if, you know, they would talk about being in the most acute distress, sometimes they'd have GPs that were supportive, sometimes GPs who didn't understand but it was just being put on waiting lists. And, you know, these are people in emergency situations having a real crisis. And, and it's just, we just, even though the Westminster government years ago spoke about giving physical and mental health parity of esteem, the resources still on there for mental health. So you get people in real emergencies, but they're just put on waiting lists where they just continue to, to suffer. <laughs> and it's no, no offense to anyone that gets a call because you can't really, well, obviously you worry now if you got called but you know in ye olden days when i was young and i'd be going please can somebody see me and then some lady would come out and they go just take some beachums mrs smith and i was like she said, what <laughs> i'm my head here and she's just gone in for a wee chat cup of tea and uh, yeah they just put me on a waiting list it's ridiculous i mean I, I, you know one of the things with lockdown i mean I, I find this sometimes we haven't spoken about this enough as a country lockdown and mental health i wrote a guardian piece about this a few months ago and i wrote it because i support obviously necessary measures to prevent a terrible virus which has killed 120,000 people in this country uh, and a lot more would have died without those measures but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the evils of it including the impact of mental health and there are lots of people who didn't have mental distress before who obviously are struggling now this is hard this is tough you know we're talking now a year almost since the first lockdown was announced uh we're, we you know we can't hug each other we can't spend you know we're often confined to our flats you've got lots of people who are in abusive relationships you've got young lgbtq teenagers often with anti-lgbtq parents I and mean, we could go on and it's important isn't it that we talk about you know i support those measures but we do need to talk about because the danger is all the kind of opponents of it just take the lead on that and manipulate people but actually this is obviously really really difficult for people's mental health even for people who didn't already have those existing issues Oh, 100% because, well, as we all know, people are losing jobs, people are isolated, as you say, people are in abusive relationships, you know, um, it's so hard and you can't go, like, I, I have to t text my neighbour downstairs who's been isolating, obviously, forever, and then I text her to say, I'm going to the shops and I'll leave the bananas outside, but I'm wearing gloves, so it's all fine, and I just want to go and give her a hug, and she phones me up and she's the same, she wants to give me a hug, but none of us can do these things, and... I think people as well who've not had mental distress before and now it's happening to them, it's going to be confusing because they, you know, they might think they're not, you know, they're not doing enough, um, they're not being strong enough. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really awful time. I really feel for people and I feel, I mean, I feel for everybody. I feel for the teenagers at the moment. I feel, you know, when I was 18, I was doing all sorts of things and my daughter's now 18 and just sitting at home getting tutored online. And I just think you should be out causing chaos. <laughs> like, I mean, I think that just sucks for young people. Cause I think, you know, you, in, you know, you had the exam fiasco in England uh, yeah. and then you got a load of those young people who obviously at that age, you want to be getting drunk and making very stupid mistakes and having sex with people you regret later in life. And then they spend, and then they, and then they go to, yeah, that was true. That's part of being an adolescence. We all did that. And then you end up being, and then you end up going to university. And in England, you get saddled with huge amounts of debt for doing that. Uh, and then you just, you know, in Manchester, students were sent to Manchester University. And obviously you think the first few weeks, you're getting drunk, you're going out to Canal Street and all that kind of stuff. Instead, they're locked away and they woke up some of these students and the university started building this massive fence to trap them in uh, cost them a that. It was ridiculous. But I mean, that's the thing. I mean, think, you know, for young people, you know, I mean, obviously they're making sacrifices to protect older people, which is very important. But that sucks, doesn't it? They, those years, you know, I can't even imagine what, that, you know, what that would be like to be going through as tough as it is now. I think when I was about 19 or 20, I went missing in Manchester for about a month. It was great fun. That's what kids should be doing. <laughs> Where in Manchester? Where in Manchester? I was hanging out with all the students at Fallowfield. 
have Fallowfield, love a bit of Fallowfield. Yeah. I miss Manchester. I'm a plastic northerner. I sold out my northern roots. Where are you? Uh, I'm now in Islington. Like a cliche. You're just round the corner from me. Pop into the radio show next week. Oh, I will. Oh, that's a good idea. You live in Islington? No, I do Islington radio on a Friday. Oh, I was going to say, ah, that makes sense. Oh, well, definitely. All right, I'll just Google that. That's exciting. Yeah. Tell, me about the, tell me about the radio. Um, I just got a phone call from a guy called Tom Bright, who's a singer-songwriter. He's got a song out at the moment um, and called Legacy. And he just called me out of the blue and said, we've got this new radio station up and coming. Um, we're just looking for, we don't have any money, but we're just looking, would you be interested? No one has any money. I can't remember the last paid job I ever did. So um, <laughs> so I just said, yeah, why not? So it's me, Tom, in a studio with our masks on and I just pick whatever I like to pick. And um, there's other people like Paul Gallagher's got a show on there. Uh, my friend Stu Whiffin from Off the Beaten Track, he's got a show on there. Uh, Rowena Alice um, from the Subways. Yeah, just a whole bunch of random people playing music we like. This is cute. Do you know what? I've just looked it up. I was listening to every word, but I also looked it up. I'm f- I pressed follow. Went to the toilet, had a cup of tea, came back, heard Gail was still talking, and then tuned back in again. Is that what you're trying to do? <laughs> I did not do that. That's an absolute outrageous, <laughs> defamatory slur of my good character. Thank you very much. <laughs> I've looked it up. Islington Radio is an online station delivering music and culture to global audience. Part of Crouch End Studio, Archway Tavern. I know the Archway Tavern. I've been there a few times. Oh, sorry. Go on, Gail. Gail, say, say that again. Sorry. Two minutes away from the Archway Tavern. Oh, is that where you live? Just near there? That's a lovely part. I don't live there, but the the radio station's there. Right, because I used to live in Archway, or as I like to call it, Highgate Slopes. Yeah. Um, it's got loads of Irish pubs, lots of Irish pubs around Archway. But they're all closed, obviously, so it's a bit shit, to be honest with you, at the moment. No, it's lovely. I love it. And we're in the, the beautiful studios that um, used to be an old church, and it's absolutely stunning, and I love it. But I'm in... Um, I live... <laughs> I don't know why I laugh at this. I live in the street that Dennis Nielsen lived in, in North London. Oh, right. No way. <laughs> this is like, you're gonna, it needs to have a blue plaque for both of you. Yeah. <laughs> he's, way, he's way down the other ends, but I jog past it every day and I think, oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's, That's incredible. Gail, tell me about lockdown. Tell me, what's your routine been? I mean, Islington Radio, clearly. But what's your kind of, what's the kind of, how have you got through it? Because this is a year in now. It's ridiculous. With your cat, obviously your cat is key. Cats are key, by the way. Very big cat fan. But what's your, what's your been your way to get through it? What's your kind of approach been? What's your routine been? Um, the beginning was really hard because my dad's passed away in Spain um, t- 10 days before lockdown or something like that. And so I had to fly over and... Um, get him and come back and then i had a virus of sorts so i was in the house for six weeks coughing and not breathing and not smelling things and but i I couldn't get a doctor's appointment because they weren't seeing anybody so they just told me not to leave the house so um that was the beginning and then after that you know i've spent most of the time sorting out legal documents to do with my dad and then now I'm back on track, so I'm up in the morning, I go for a walk or a run or something. So I'm going to be 50 in four weeks' time. So I am doing everything to keep positive and waving at strangers out the window that don't know me, but just just to sort of have some human contact. So I'm just trying to make sure I get up every day, have a cold shower, go for a walk. That's right, that's it. And I'm, I'm writing a book, so, well, it's pretty much written, but I just keep rewriting stuff because I've got nothing else to do. I was going to ask about the book. I mean, the one thing I just, before I ask about the book, and, and then I need to as well, because I'm taking up all your time, so I need to be aware of that. But with the with your dad, I mean, that's that. I mean, that's hard. I mean, I, I lost my dad three years ago, and that was hard enough. But during all this, when it it becomes so much harder to to be able to grow. I mean, I just lost my, um, my dad's cousin and uh, cousin's wife. They died within two weeks. And for the, grand, for the kids and grandkids, processing all that during all this... It's so hard. I mean, how did you manage to just have that time to grieve and, 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 you know, without being able to hug people? Yeah, well, do you know what? Because, well, I don't, I've lost my mum and my grandparents, so it was just me. And um, I just, my dad, I spoke to him in the morning and he was just out having a coffee with his mates. And then he got home and had a massive brain hemorrhage. And I know this sounds horrible, but I just think, do you know what? At least he didn't suffer. 
you know, and he was having a nice time. He was in Marbella, living up, doing, you know, having his midlife crisis life or whatever he was doing. And yeah, suddenly it was just done. So it was more tricky when I got him home doing the legal work on my own, just sitting in the house. And I had my dad, I got him cremated and I actually put him in the spare room for one point. So I was like, I can't speak to you at the moment. <laughs> this is too much work for a lockdown. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, you kind of appreciate that. So uh, I don't know. Um, it was difficult, but I think I, um, yeah, I did the whole, be strong, get on with it thing. I'm still dealing with the legal side of things, but um, yeah, it was just one of those things, isn't it? You just have to get on with it. There's nothing else you can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is tough, but he's there with you. Did you find that? Would you chat to him? Is that how it works? <laughs> well, when we actually got a break from the first lockdown, um, I took him up to, um, I've got one uncle, Uncle Melvin, and um, my, my dad's brother. So I took the box up and I said, do you want him? Because he's doing my head in. <laughs> I took him up to Uncle Melvin, so Uncle Melvin's now got him. So I had like six months of him sitting here, and then I got a break and took him up and gave him to Melvin, so now Melvin can talk to him. <laughs> I think your dad, I'm sure, would appreciate that. Kind of, he's like, it's like, I've done my bit for a while now. Sorry, Dad. Someone else is going to have to deal with this. I was like, my God, he's been in Spain, London, Scotland, and it's lockdown. Who does that? My I dad. know, he's travelling more than most people. I think it's really nice because I didn't know, we didn't know, what we did with our dad is we got his ashes and we put in the park opposite where I grew up in Sheffield and we planted a tree, which I thought was quite, I know other people started doing the tree thing, but it's weird because otherwise it's, just, it's kind of, when he died, it wasn't clear what, you don't even think about those things, do you? Yeah. You don't think, what do I, what do we do with his I ashes? Don't, I don't know. So um, I think, yeah, my dad is still on a mantelpiece in Scotland. So, that, I mean, he'll be happy up there. And my uncle Melvin said he might take him for a pint. So that'll be amusing. <laughs> I, think this is, I mean, literally, he's living his best life. Yeah, exactly. In a, in a perverse sense. Let me just ask you about your book. What, tell me about the book. Well, um, it's just, oh, it's been going on forever because I was let down by a publisher a couple of years back, then I lost my mojo and I couldn't be bothered. And now I've got um, somebody that's helping me out and she's dealing with publishers at the moment. So it's mostly, um, it was right when I got sectioned, it starts off with getting sectioned and then the ups and downs of what's happened to me in my life. So it's, um, yeah, from being sectioned to being homeless to getting back on my feet again. So, you know, it sounds really depressing, but I try and make it as humorous as possible, put some laughter in there. And, uh, but just kind of, I thought, I kept writing a diary and then it just kept going. And I thought, you know what, this might help people. And if they don't want to read it, then they don't have to. <laughs> I just kept going. You must have written a book, no? I've written three books and I hate writing more than more than anything, actually, to be honest. I mean, obviously I write, that's my job, writing. And I, what I hate about it is I hate the solitude. I hate having to spend time just with myself and my thoughts. And sometimes I just wish I could just walk off for myself and just go, I've had enough. Because other people have that. They've got that ability. They can just go, if they so wanted, they could just go, I've had enough. But um, anyway, do you enjoy writing? Do you find it cathartic? No, uh, no I, I do sometimes and then other times I just want to cry and I have actually um, set fire to a few chapters once outside in the street and then after I set fire to them I was like oh actually they were quite good. <laughs> and then you go like scrambling around in the ashes trying to trying to stick it back together again. <laughs> yeah I've chucked things out the window, I've, I've flushed it down the toilet, I've got really angry with myself. I mean I probably could have written War and Peace by now but I'm <laughs> sucking it away. Go away. Get, get out of, I find that what I find about when you write a book and you finish it and it's published is, or, or when you've, no, actually that's not true. It's the editing. You write it and then you send it to your editor and then he has to keep editing it. And my editor is just incredible. He's a genius. But it, that book becomes a bit like an ex that won't leave you alone. And it's there. It's like, I finished with you. Stop knocking on my door. Stop coming back for more. Just leave me alone. You've obviously had better exes than me because no one comes knocking back on my door. <laughs> <laughs> okay, honestly, I mean, I mean, my exes don't either. They generally just, just, just they've just moved on. All right, I just don't want to talk about it. Um, just a couple of final things. That, that point about homelessness, because obviously you talk about that. Just tell me a bit about that because I, this is something I'm very passionate about. And homelessness generally has got, you know, over the last few years got worse and worse and what i thought was really striking at the beginning of the pandemic is all of a sudden the government said oh we're going to abolish homelessness now 
And it was kind of a case of there was always, if they always had the will, they could have done something. And they did at the beginning of the pandemic for public health reasons. And yet, not just rough sleeping, because I think people just see homelessness as people on the streets, when actually there's huge numbers of families in bed and breakfasts and people without. So just tell me about your experience of, of homelessness. And, and guess what, what? What did you learn from it? Um, yeah, I just couldn't, literally the work wasn't coming in and I was even applying for jobs at the library. I couldn't get work anywhere. And my, the rent, as you know, in London is, is, can be super, super expensive. And I was trying to, to pay my rent and then the money was running out and the electricity was getting cut off. And then I realized, right, we're in some deep, deep mess here and that was it. I just um, tried to ask for help, didn't get any help, had to go on waiting list again, went to the job centre to see if I could, they were like, well, what's your speciality? And I went, I will work at anything, anything whatsoever. Um, and they were useless. But uh, so then, yeah, I just couldn't pay the rent and the rent man came and got cash off me and that was the last cash I had. And then I thought, well, I have got nowhere to stay now. So, um, I'd stay on some people's sofas occasionally and only a couple of nights I, I was out, outdoors, which was a bit scary and weird. And then, yeah, my friend who lives around the corner from me, she had a spare room, so she said, you can come and stay here. But, you know, you have that um, um, immense feeling of shame as well because, you know, she's got children and I'm in the house and I just think, you know, I'm a grown woman and I can't get a job and I'm staying in someone's spare room. But... Uh, Managed to turn that one around and I've got a nice little flat now, but it was very frightening and it was, um, yeah, it was, I mean, I've worked a lot with homeless people for years and years and years and to actually be on that side um, was, yeah, something I wouldn't wish on anybody and the government should be doing something, <laughs> they should be doing something, they're spending enough money on crap all over the place, they should be looking after homeless people, definitely. It just shows as well, doesn't it, this idea of, you know, by the grace god go i in that that you know often people who are struggling are demonized in society it's a case of well they, this is their fault if they're poor or if they're homeless if they're struggling um and you're someone you know you were in what's seen as the most glamorous possible profession on tv all the time in you know top of the pops iconic music show uh you know a household name and yet this was something that happened to you. And that just shows that without a proper safety net in society, you know, this is something which, which can affect like most people without the support that they need. It can happen to anybody whatsoever. And, you know, if you don't have a family structure around you as well, then it's, you know, who do you turn to? You don't want to like go knocking on your mate's door and going, oh, lend us a tenner <laughs> it just is embarrassing and it's awful and you just think oh my gosh um we're yeah but the thing is I, I i'm not a lavish spender i don't have a car don't have anything like that we didn't get you you know like the fhm didn't get paid for that we didn't get huge amounts of money for things um and yeah i saved as much as i could but you know getting married and getting divorced wasn't cheap <laughs> i don't know why i'm laughing just laugh at everything these days. I, I'm the same. This is my not a nervous tick, <laughs> but often, often I find this like in in adverse circumstances. Sometimes I don't know. Laughter just seems to happen. <laughs> I don't know if it's a comforting thing. I don't know, but it's just it seems natural. It does seem natural. You know, it's just one of those things. I just think, don't ever invite me to a funeral because <laughs> I'll be the one going <laughs> just nervous laughter. That is the worst nightmare, isn't it? Imagine that. You're in the most serious, horrifying situation, just start laughing hysterically. It's like, um, just finally then, I mean, what are your hopes now? What would you like? What, what, in terms of, I mean, we've all, we're all on some weird eternal search for happiness if we're going to be all philosophical. What do you hope? What do you want to achieve now? What, what, or what in terms of being happy, in terms of happy Gail and, and how you'd like to get to the happy place that makes you happy. What, what are you thinking? My happy place will, is when my daughter has got into the university of her choice and she's happy, because I, I keep saying to her, honey, when we go to Manchester, she went, there is no we, there is no we here. You are not coming wherever I'm going. I was like, so when we go to St. Andrews, she's like, no, we are not going anywhere, mummy. 
So my first thing would be make sure that she's happy, safe, and doing what she wants to do because she is stressed this year. Like, I just want to hug her all the time, but of course she's 18. She's like, get off. But um, yeah, I wish happiness for her. And I just, do you know what? I just, I can't wait to hug someone, to be honest with you. I want to hug someone and I want to just make everyone smile, I think. I think I keep smiling, but I've got a mask on. But you can tell now I've got really wrinkly eyes. <laughs> You do not. You know, you look exceptionally youthful. I'm not going to have that from you. <laughs> well, I, I still feel exceptionally youthful, but I know that I'm going to be 50 soon, which is a bit of a... Oh, what? Five zero. Forget it. Ignore that. It's a number. I was going to have a massive party, but now I can't, of course, because it's March and we'll still be locked down. There will but... be. We are all, when this ends, and it will end, the nightmare will end, we're all just having non-stop constant parties. That's what's going to happen. We're going to balance obviously in Old Compton Street. In fact, we'll just do the whole of Old Compton Street because that's where I used to live around the corner from there. So that's my second home. So yeah, let's just have a massive party. You better come. Bring let's have a massive street party. The Gale yeah. and Owen street party has been organised now. It's going to be in Soho. Everyone's going to act a complete and utter disgrace. Oh, it would be very disgraceful. Perfect. Uh, Gail, it's been an absolute honour. You've you've definitely put a smile on my face. But not only that, it's been very insightful and, and thoughtful. And as I've said, you know, I think you talking about this, I know you must be sick of it, but it it, it really does help people. It it, it takes on the stigma um, and, it, and it makes people think that, because it's the loneliest feeling in the world often, isn't it, when you're struggling? And yeah. to hear other people who've gone through what you've gone through makes a big impact. You don't have to talk about it. And the fact you do is, you know, so thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, thank, been a thank real delight. Having me on. And I'll see you at, at Islington Radio at some point. So oh, you yeah. just drop me a message and come over and pick some tunes. I'm inviting myself on. I mean, I apologise in advance <laughs> for the tunes that I'm going to pick, but but I will pick them. You've you've, you've given the offer. Excellent. And then I'll meet you for our, our party drinks once this is all over. Oh, yeah, we're getting drunk together. Yeah, I just took that as red. Oh my god, yeah. I'm gonna outdo you, my friend. Oh, my, I, my young you, friend. <laughs> I think I mean to be fair, I was gonna say I'll drink you under the table, but I've started drinking only on Friday and Saturday um every week. And I've realized your alcohol tolerance dips very quickly if you stop drinking during the week. So I now I just get drunk on Friday and Saturday. I am pretty drunk pretty quickly. But anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you for this evening. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly, because I'll be by 10 o'clock, I'll be out. But seriously, uh, I look forward to it and uh, lots of them. Thank you very much. Cheers for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And if you do want to help us get even bigger and better, then all your support is appreciated, either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owendones84, where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to you. Um, please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across more people will listen which is you know the plan thanks for listening everyone and I'll speak to you soon hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.